think it's generally accepted that people enjoy celebrating firsts. You can usually tell, and uh, Cindy, who sings in our choir at the 9 o'clock service, is telling me that her daughter's uh, having a baby today and probably has already been born, right? Is that what Cindy was saying? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. Maybe. <laughs> at any rate. What people really enjoy doing is when they have a baby, they celebrate a first. You can tell because they do not keep silent on Facebook, right? And Instagram is showing all these pictures. Isn't this the most beautiful baby in the world? And of course, then over the next months, you'll be assured that the first time the baby rolls over, it goes on Facebook. The first time the baby uh, uh, says goo goo uh, or something that sounds vaguely like mummy or daddy, that goes up on Facebook. As soon as the baby takes the first step, Facebook, loses the first tooth, Facebook, gets the first tooth, Facebook. All of these sorts of things are things we celebrate, although I feel sometimes sorry for the second, third, and fourth kids because they don't quite get the same attention and treatment. But the reality of it is, whether it's fair or not, many times firsts are things we enjoy celebrating. I mentioned a little bit earlier about this being the presentation of the Lord or Candlemas, and it's a celebration of the first time Jesus is presented at the temple. But this is a first that happens to uh, Jewish children throughout all of the ancient uh, times up until the destruction of the temple. Today is a celebration of this first, but I want to speak to you today about why this really continues to matter. I mean, after all, we see our friends or family or whatever celebrating the first on Facebook, and then honestly, you move on to something else and forget about it. You're happy for them, but it doesn't affect your life very much. There's really two things that I want to speak to you about, about what this episode tells us. It's a very rich episode with lots of directions we could go in, but I'll limit myself to two. I'll say, first of all, this is an important uh, reminder that who we worship and what we do as Christians is not just to learn information, but it's to come to love and to serve and to worship the person of who Jesus is. And secondly, it tells us something about who God calls to follow him. It is not superstars. I believe he calls each and every one of us, of our different abilities and backgrounds, and says to us, you matter to me, and I have an important task in your kingdom. So keep in mind those two, but one of the things that's challenging when we look at the scriptures is, is that sometimes things seem pretty obvious. They don't need a lot of background, because maybe a story just resonates, like the prodigal son. We probably have all heard contemporary stories of a, of a child who runs off as disobedient and the challenges there. And this it starts off, however, because of, the of a challenging episode that we may not understand very well. Like, why is Jesus visiting the temple? One of the problems we have in our modern culture is that when we visit things, we usually visit things as tourists. I mean, we go to visit Europe and we see some grand cathedral and we snap pictures and then we go away. The idea of a pilgrimage to something is not something that we tend to think of very much in the modern Western world. What Jesus and his parents are doing for the presentation, we're told in Luke's gospel he's presented to the Lord as they're fulfilling an important law in the Jewish heritage. This is a law that came about in the time in which Israel were held as slaves in Egypt. If you remember the story about how it is that Moses leads the people through the Red Sea, that started because Israel were a nation who were held as slaves in bondage in the country of Egypt. And God raises up Moses, an Israelite, a Jewish man, to be a prophet, to lead his people. But the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, does not want to listen when God says, let my people free. So God sends plagues. And the last plague that finally convinces Pharaoh to allow this people to go is the plague of the death of the firstborn. God sends the angel of death, and the angel of death kills the firstborn child of every household. 
except he says that those of you who want to come under the mantle of my protection, here's what you can do. To show that you trust me, to show that you make a sacrifice, you can make a sacrifice of a lamb and place the, the blood on your lintel of your door. And the angel death will pass over your household and your child will be saved. Even to this day, Jewish people celebrate the Passover festival, and it's called the Passover because of the day the angel passed over the Jewish household. Now, why that's significant to the story today is that we are told that Moses is told after this episode that as a way of remembering what God has done to free you and of sparing you, the Israelite people were told that whenever you have a firstborn son, you are to make a sacrifice and visit the temple 40 days after his birth to make a sacrifice because this firstborn son reminds you that God saved the firstborn sons of Israel. And every year it would happen, and every year, of course, when it would happen, it would be an opportunity to tell your neighbors, talk to your children about what it means and the great story of how God brought about Israel's redemption. So when Simeon and Anna, these people who are in the temple at the time, and they see this and they're waiting for the redemption of Israel, it's significant that this is a celebration of God's redemption, how he saved slaves, but they're also looking forward to the day when he will save Gentiles, not just Jews, and look forward to the day that not just will he physically save us, but spiritually save us from our sins and save us also from the bonds of death. So that's what's going on. That's why Jesus ends up at the temple. They're not sitting this as tourists. They're making a pilgrimage in order to fulfill the law of God. So once you know that background, here's the two things that I want to jump in with. For many of us, remember, it seems like forever ago, but Christmas was only 40 days ago. We celebrate today, uh, February 2nd, the presentation, because it's 40 days after the birth of Jesus. But if you listen to Luke's Gospel, if you were to start Luke's Gospel, which is one of the four stories about Jesus in the Bible, four books, and start from number one, you're going to notice something interesting about Luke's Gospel in particular. It is that it's filled with references to Jesus' person a long time before it starts filling with references to Jesus' teaching. Like Mark's Gospel starts off, boom, hits the ground, Jesus, repent and believe in the Gospel. Luke doesn't start off like that. Luke starts off by an angel telling uh, Mary, a child will be born. So we hear about Jesus' conception and how his body is formed in his mother's womb. Then we go on to hear about his birth and how it is that he's born and shepherds come to worship him. Then we're told in Luke's gospel he's circumcised like every Jewish boy is at the eighth day after his birth. Now we're he hearing about how Jesus is presented at the temple and how Simeon picks him up in his arms and sings this song of joy when he picks him up. If you go on a little bit further, there's a story many of you may remember from Sunday school about how Jesus is brought by his parents when he's about 12 years old to visit the temple. And then the very next story that Luke tells us about Jesus is how Jesus is baptized by John and, and dunked under the water and how the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Luke's gospel, when it talks about Jesus for the first few chapters, all it talks about is Jesus' body, Jesus as a person, and this is a strong indication for what Jesus' true value is, his true ministry is, is that although he will teach, he'll do great things, everything leads up to Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, and rising. It's what Jesus does as a person is the strongest focus in Luke's Gospel. Now, I can tell you that and you think, well, duh, Jesus dies, rises, that's all exciting. We all know this as Christians. But it's significant for us because I think many times we as Christians understand and we're captivated by the power of Jesus' stories and his teaching. Most of us will know you should be a good Samaritan, right? 
because of that story of the Good Samaritan. Or people will say, you know, you should really love your neighbor. You'll hear people who maybe are, are even atheists who will tell you that because this is a quote so well known about Jesus' powerful things or judge not lest you be judged. These are really important things. So I won't denigrate it. But there is something that's really dangerous when you look at Jesus' teachings because you can be captivated by his teachings and forget that what Jesus' invitation to us is more than just study my teachings. It's come to follow me and befriend me as the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When we look at Simeon and Anna, they know this. What does Simeon do? The very first thing is not tell me all about how Jesus came about and about the angel's words. His first thing he does is he picks him up and he holds him in his arms and he blesses this little child. Jesus is celebrated because this bodily little person has come into the temple. Now for us, the challenge, of course, is that when we're looking at Jesus' teaching and not doing what Simeon did, we can easily come to the belief that what Christian life is about is what university life is about. Study hard and do well on the exam, right? You know, I started off my career studying microbiology. I went to UBC in Vancouver, and I changed gears pretty radically over time, as you can tell. I can probably tell you a little bit about uh, what critters are, are probably all over the place, little bacteria and things, but it doesn't come in handy very much in my current career. But one thing I do remember was a real shock, going from a high school where you had a certain class size and you knew all your teachers. My first lecture when I started at university at UBC, you know, you sort of think, okay, I've got to consult the map and where do I go? And you go in and it's on room 101, you go and you sit down and you realize this isn't just a room. This is an amphitheater that sees 300 people. And you got like 200 and something people sitting with you. And then the professor strolls on and you need your binoculars to see him down there because he's a little speck at the bottom, right? And then the first day, what do they do? He says, I'm handing out a syllabus. And what that is, is that it's a list of all the things you should read by the end of the term, all the topics we're going to cover. And so you look at that and then you realize over time that what the professor's doing is some of the professors are just reading almost exactly what you're going to go and read from your textbook. And some of the students who thought, I don't want to really bother doing this, you can skip all the classes. There's no attendance. It's because everything depends on how you do in the exam at the end of the year. So you can just do all your readings. And the reason you stick around listening to the professor is maybe he's going to tip his hand and sort of show you what would be on the exam. Thing is, is that today, I don't remember the name of a single teacher. I wouldn't recognize them if I bumped into them onto the street because the teacher was not important in those courses. What was important is studying the things he teaches or she teaches and doing well in the exam. It's easy for us to believe that sometimes as Christians. What do you do? You read the Bible, go to Bible studies, do a little bit of studying. You come to the lecture that Father Stephen does on a Sunday morning. And at the last day in the resurrection, when Jesus comes to judge heaven and earth, he says, okay, everybody sit down. It's a multiple choice form. And you need to get 51% if you want to make your way through these pearly gates, right? And then so you study up, sharpen your pencil. But of course, that's not what Jesus says at all. He says, come to me, you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Jesus keeps pointing to himself. And that is so important because I think in our Western world, not only do we look at, at, at a relationship to Jesus much in the way that sometimes we're tempted to look at it in universities, I think across our culture, many times, we, we, we don't recognize the value of persons and the value of relationships. 
you read statistics today, you find sad increases in things like suicide and deaths of despair, which are through alcoholism and addiction. It's become worse in the United States, but it's happening in Canada. But the number of people, even if it's not that severe, will tell you uh, that statistics tell us more and more people report feeling lonely and feeling like they don't have friends that they can rely on. Smaller families and fewer people to turn on turn to means a greater sense of loneliness, particularly amongst the elderly today. We not only have problems with the relationship to Jesus, we have problems in relationships to each other. And that is a sad reality. Jesus points us to something deeper. He says, when I teach you, it's not like university professor handing out the syllabus and do all of your ex- uh, studying for the exam. Instead, it's more like a mother who's teaching her daughter about how to raise a family. A person who walks alongside you and walks with you and sympathizes with you and protects you and helps you and shows you and not just tells you. One of the saddest stories I've heard recently is a story I actually heard when a few years ago our parish sponsored a day on the land with the Cattery Native Ministry. And this was really, really powerful uh, in, in Fitzroy Harbor. And they showed us some of the, the ways that First Nations people uh, uh, cultural artifacts, things that are really important about the sacred circle, the importance of hearing different voices. But in that circle, one of the women there who was leading was telling the story of how it was her mother, who had gone to a residential school, was taken from her home when she was a child and went to this school and came back and had children of her own. And But she said, you know, my mother was good. She provided for us, cared for us. But what broke my heart in my relationship to my mom is that she was never affectionate with us couldn't hug us, and would never tell me that she loved me. You said, you know, I think it was really because when she was at a formative year and could have learned from her mother by being held by her mother, being taught by her mother, learning to be vulnerable and to show vulnerability, she was taken away at that point. She didn't learn because she didn't have someone standing next to her, walking with her, and actually reaching out to say, I'm here. I'm not just giving you an example or an exam or, or a book to read. I'm with you. That's what parenting is. You know, you think about a child and how wonderful it is that your mom can come over and help you and look after things and show you how it's done and this is how you hold and this is how it is that I, I, I comforted you when you, were, when you were sick and colicky and these are ways that I can help and, and learning from one another that's not just cold and sterile but instead is personal and warm and relational. That's what Jesus says to us. He is a person who's come to us not just to teach us like a professor from far away, but a person who's come to teach us is a person who loves us. It's not an accident that the language father and son are relationship words. They're not just what do I do, but what am I? I'm in a relationship with you. When Jesus says to you, I am, you are my friends and not just servants, he says there is a special way of relating to me because I care about you. What are we called to do? What are we encouraged to do? Is to say, Jesus, we want to take you on as a leader and as a friend. Yes, as king but recognizing that we are daughters and sons of the King. And for that reason, we can walk with Jesus, turn our lives over to Jesus, and trust that his relationship towards is a relationship founded on love. The last thing that I want to mention is a briefer mention, but I also think it's important. I mentioned Simeon and Anna are there. They're at the temple on the day Jesus is there. They're led to be there by the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing that's really worth noting, I think, about Simeon and Anna. Neither of them are famous. Nothing uh, happens in the Bible about Simeon or Anna. There's no mention of them before this episode. There's no mention of them after this episode. They're there and they're gone. 
Simeon, we hear a couple of words. Anna, we didn't hear anything. And yet, they're both mentioned as witnesses to Jesus coming. When God says, I need two witnesses, my thought would be, as if I was God, I'd say, where can I find uh, Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber and get a celebrity endorsement for my son, right? Instagram followers, famous, everybody's going to know it. He said, chooses two relative nobodies and says, I want you to be my witnesses. And we are told that Anna, whose words we don't even hear, that this woman who is an elderly widow in the temple makes known to Jerusalem what has happened. And God uses them as his witnesses to make Jesus known. That's an encouragement for us. I know that famous people have their part. That's really wonderful. I mean, I don't know if you've listened to Kanye West's new album, but that's pretty impressive. A famous guy has devoted his entire album to Jesus after a very wayward life. Worth listening to. But you know what? The God doesn't wait until Kanye West gives you an endorsement. What God says and said is that, come to me any who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You and me matter. The way we love our children, the way we treat our neighbors, the ways that we offer to pray for those people in our lives who are in need. God says, my job is not to say, can you reach uh, all of these things uh, in, in great entitlements and all the things that make the world praise you. All he really asks is, do you want a relationship with me in which you follow where I lead and do you trust me? All of us can do that. All of us play our part. Anna and Simeon played their part, and many Christians throughout the ages have played their part, and we will never know until the resurrection what part they played. But they played an important part in how it is that Christ came to be known to us. So how do we make the light of Christ known? Don't stop and ask yourself whether I'm brilliant. Don't ask yourself whether I'm rich enough or famous enough or have studied enough. Ask yourself only, do I trust Jesus enough to let his work shine through me? That's all God demands of us. God can do great things through people like Simeon and Anna, and he can do great things through people like us.